Welcome to another episode of Unbecoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. As always, you can find us on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. Please do send any comments or questions or suggestions to onbecoming at gmail.com. Additionally, if you've been enjoying the podcast so far and you might want to help us grow, please consider recommending us to friends, uh, reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or donating to our Patreon, which includes access to exclusive members-only content. Finally, I'd like to mention that in the new year, we will be airing some really fascinating interviews with scholars who interact with some of the very same issues that we've been interacting with so far. I'll provide more news on that next time. Today, I'm turning to a very basic question. We could put it this way. Where do I get our sense of morality? Or how do we decide that something is right or wrong? I should point out that growing up evangelical, this question didn't even really become a question until I was somewhere in my 20s. In one sense, it becomes a question, or perhaps it becomes an urgent question, due to what's happening in Western society. Namely, many people think that the common consensus concerning morality is broken down. In much of Western society, there are significant tensions between different segments of society. To put this more pointedly, there are people in Western society who would much prefer that queer people like me didn't exist, or else would like us marginalized as far as possible. But where does such a view, or for that matter, its opposite, come from? How we answer this question is a lot about what we take to be important. In the evangelical world, the idea that morality is God-given is so ingrained that it's difficult to move past such a conclusion in order to ask the question of whether we need God in order to be good. William Lane Craig, debate atheist, he has a very special strategy, one that always ends on this point. He argues that without God, we have no basis for morality. That may seem like a simple claim, but it's actually a bit more complex than it might at first seem. I think that Bill means that there is no ground for morality. Um, I'm calling him Bill here because he's a friend from way back, though our paths have probably diverged significantly since then. For instance, you can say murder is wrong, but Craig was going to probably ask you, how do you know that? Why do you think that? For him, simply recognizing the Bible as inerrant and then considering its claims makes it clear to him that the basis of morality is God. But I want to allow him to say exactly what he means by this, since I think his idea of morality is somewhat problematic. To quote him, I want to argue that if God exists, then the objectivity of moral values, moral duties, and moral accountability is secured, but that in the absence of God, that is, if God does not exist, then morality is just a human convention. That is to say, morality is wholly subjective and non-binding. We might act in precisely the same ways that we do in fact act, but in the absence of God, such actions would no longer count as good or, for that matter, evil, since if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Thus, we cannot be good without God. On the other hand, if we do believe that moral values and duties are objective, that provides moral grounds for believing in God. 
Let's try to unpack this. The concern here is for something called the objectivity of moral values, moral duties, and moral accountability. I will have more to say about this notion of objectivity because it's played an important role in the past and continues to play an important role. But the most important part of this claim is that these moral values should be objective. Now, what does objective mean? In one sense, of course, this is a huge question, but I think the point is that these values are to stand apart from us. They are God's rules, they are God's values, and we should follow them because, well, he's God. The term objective is, I think, a holdover from the Enlightenment, back when people thought that something like objectivity is or could be possible. An objective morality would be one that, if it existed, we would all be able to see as correct, eventually, or with the right perspective. Now, why is objectivity of values so important for Craig? I think it's because he wants to have a universally applicable morality, one that does not change over time, one that is grounded in God. What Craig misses is that if Christianity is true, then human beings are made in God's image. Now, you probably realize, especially if you've heard this term before, and even more especially if you've heard people make use of this idea, it's a very vague claim, but let's for the moment just assume it's correct. If it's correct, then probably one of the things we can say is that God is also a person, and that leads us to a problem. The very idea of objectivity was conjured up to overcome subjectivity, which in this case would mean the subject being able to know what is right or wrong in an objective sense. Now, one of the difficulties here is what would it even mean to know something objectively? Ultimately, it would require us giving up our sense of self, of who we are. Of course, once you realize this and you realize, hmm, objectivity really isn't such a good thing. But the problem is that Craig suggests that we are left with a kind of moral morass, a purely subjective morality. I don't think that's the case at all. I think it's quite possible for human beings to confer and agree about what's right and wrong. The more we are able to see our views reflected in the views of others, the closer we get to something like objectivity. The closest thing to objectivity that we get is that people agree on far more things than they disagree. We tend to forget this point, since, of course, as we noted with Foucault, groups define themselves, among other ways, by exclusion. Since our group, whatever group that is, is defined to some extent on its difference from other groups, it's easy to assume that our group, again, whatever group that might be, is somehow special. At this point, I think it should be clear why objective morality just isn't on the table. At best, it's a way of talking. At worst, it's a way of talking that makes the good people and those other people the bad people. We're the good people. Of course, we, be, we believe in objective morality. Those are the bad people. They don't. The problem here is that morality is not some abstract thing. It's about the nitty-gritty of human existence. Um, just 
just add something here. I think we owe um, many things to other beings, like animals in the world, not to mention the world itself, but I'm going to just pass by that for, for now. But there's another aspect to this question. Some evangelicals believe that we are utterly sinful and that we are not capable of doing anything good on our own. I remember a student saying to me that he didn't think that non-Christians were capable of doing anything good. I responded by asking whether any non-Christian parents loved their children. The quick answer was a definitive no. Not surprisingly, when I've asked for an explanation, he didn't have one. But of course, there's something here worth mentioning. The student was a first semester freshman. That means that he had probably picked up that rhetoric from somewhere in his evangelical church. And of course, we know that part of the evangelical rhetoric is that evangelicalism is the one true form of Christianity. There's been a softening in that stance, but that's still pretty much the stance. So it wasn't too surprising that a student would think that evangelicals are morally superior to other human beings. What made it surprising, of course, was the stark contrast. He assumed that unless one is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then one can only do wrong. That assumption then led him to think that non-parent, non-Christian parents actually don't love their children. I'm going to pass by this view. I'm assuming it's contradicted by millions of pieces of evidence, all of the instances of non-Christian parents at least seeming, seeming pretty realistically to love their children. Yes, I guess they could be all illusions, but there's no evidence for that view. Yet even if morality is not objective, can we come to any agreement on it? The first observation, I think, should be this. We do so all the time. I've used the example of stealing before. I remember back when I first suggested to my interest students that morality might be possible even without God. And of course, they were very skeptical. My argument was simple. Would you want to live in a society in which theft was perfectly legal? Think about it. That means you could walk away from your house, you could put all locks you wanted on there, but if anybody got in there and took your stuff, that was fine. I don't think anybody would want to live in a society where that was okay. Another argument might be this. Would you like to live in a world which lying was perfectly acceptable? Again, imagine a world in which truth and lie could never be distinguished. It would be intolerable. You couldn't live in a world like that. In other words, it's very easy to see why almost all societies have prohibitions against both theft and lying. And frankly, a whole lot of other things. But let's go back to the whole objective-subjective thing. I made the point that we know as subjects in the sense that we have a point of view because we are persons. Is God a person? That's what Christian theology says. If so, then assuming that the opposite of subjective is objective might be problematic. It is a typical philosophical or theological move to say that God knows objectively. But nothing in the Bible would suggest this. In fact, if anything, the evidence is just the opposite. God seems to have in both the Hebrew and Christian Bibles a very definite point of view. A subject-based morality starts with the idea that we are individuals who are also connected to a community of other subjects. Such morality is subjective in the sense that it's concerned about subjects, but it's not subjective in the sense of relativity. 
though I have to admit that last point needs some clarification. Morality is about relativity in the following sense. That is, that right and wrong are determined on the basis of the situation, the people involved, the circumstances, all sorts of things like that. Bear in mind that simply knowing the right thing to do is not really enough to be a moral person. You have to actually carry through on that insight. But where does morality begin? Where does it come from? If we were to say that morality is based on God, how exactly would that work? One way, of course, that various groups that believe in God or a gods or a God can say that this God or these gods disclose morality by way of a sacred text. But that only solves one problem. The best any treatise on morality or ethics or doing the right thing can do is to provide something like general guidance. Thou shalt not steal seems clear enough, though once you start to put it into practice, you realize that such a rule assumes that there is something like a right to private property and that such rights need to be spelled out in advance. After all, if you lived in a community in which everybody owned everything together, there couldn't be any stealing. It's all public property. But we still haven't gotten very clear about where morality comes from. The oldest form of organized religion is Hinduism, which goes back perhaps as far as 2300 BCE or BC, if you like. But we know that human beings existed on the earth 50,000 years ago. Did those people who lived before that time simply not have any morality? That seems unlikely. I should point out that morality is a very broad category and at work in every moment. So it's difficult to think that people could simply have gotten by without it. But that realization should cause us to rethink the question. What most people assume is that the good is tied to God in some way. You may have noticed the etymological similarity of these two words. One would seem to be the product of the other. What would happen, though, if we were to give up those assumptions and work with different ones? Philosophers have long argued over the role of reason and emotions in moral judgments. That debate concerns something even more basic. How should we think about intuitive knowledge versus what we might call rational knowledge? The simplest way to explain the difference is that intuitive knowledge consists of stuff you just know. You didn't go through any kind of logical analysis or anything like that. In other words, the sorts of things we know by way of intuition are things that we cannot fully explain how we got there. But there's an even more interesting reason why they're not easily explained. I've quoted from Jonathan Haidt before, and I'd like to do so here. He writes, The crucial distinction is really between two different kinds of cognition, intuition and reasoning. Moral emotions are one type of moral intuition, but most moral intuitions are more subtle. They don't rise to the level of emotions. The next time you read a newspaper or drive a car, notice the many tiny flashes of condemnation that flit through your consciousness. Now, most of those small flashes don't generate much of an emotion, but you are still making judgments. I think this is fully correct. But of course, if that's fully correct, then that means we are constantly making judgments, probably hundreds of judgments per day. Hate draws on the work of Jean Piaget, 
who believes that neither nature nor teaching from adults explains how children come to their moral conclusions. Instead, they learn such values as fairness from their interaction with other children, meaning that it is self-constructed as they go through the stages of moral development. Moral psychologists have shown us that children, even as young as age five, can make distinctions about right and wrong based on social context. In other words, many of those children, as young as age five, were able to recognize that some rules actually have to do with right and wrong, and thus they don't change in the context, and other rules are just social conventions. It's very interesting to think that children that young can make such a distinction. So in effect, there are two kinds of cognition. One is seeing that something is the case, and the other is reasoning why. Most of the time, we don't need to give a justification for our actions or for our intuitions because nobody questions them. But if this account of human learning is correct, then there are two different processes at work. One process is that of judging. The other process is that of justification. And if that's correct, then our moral judgments are mostly not the result of a prolonged reflection, but a quick verdict. That doesn't mean you can't revise your judgment by way of reasoned reflection. It's just that most of our judgments start that way. And to the extent that we don't think any further about those judgments, they can often simply remain that way. Now, interestingly enough, hate actually studies various subjects in various countries about this very issue. And he discovers that a significant percentage of the people he interviews were able to label a particular deed wrong without being able to provide any rationale for why they said that. One of the stories he used as a test case was the following. A family whose dog is killed by a car accident had heard that dog meat was delicious and decided to eat their dog. In 38% of the cases in which interviewees were told that story, they tried to invent a victim by claiming, for instance, that eating dog meat would make the family sick. Or they changed the story to make victimhood more believable. Or else they said something like, I know it's wrong, but I just can't think of a reason why. As Haight goes on to say, these subjects were reasoning they were working quite hard at reasoning, but it was not reasoning in search of truth. It was reasoning in support of their emotional reactions. Now, this point itself is, I think, dependent upon another one. So we need to go back just a little bit to the 1990s. N neuroscientists in the 1990s started to realize that our emotions are much more connected to reason than we had thought. Antonio Damasio came up with a book titled Descartes' Error, in which Damasio examined patients who had brain damage, leaving them with no emotional sense. That lack left them unable to make decisions or else to make very bad decisions. It turns out that the interplay of emotions and reason is what we call rationality. Now, this might seem a strange conclusion if you believe that emotions are just dumb. 
Yet scientists and psychologists and many philosophers now realize that the emotions are actually a form of rationality or cognition. We know through our feelings. This leads Haidt, and he's not alone in this, to conclude that intuition and reasoning are really two kinds of cognition. Now, Haidt then goes on to say something that I think may not be right. He claims that while intuitions are cognitive, they are not a kind of reasoning. He doesn't give any account of what he means by cognitive or cognition or, for that matter, of reasoning, so it's not exactly clear what makes him say this. But if reasoning means something like working out a solution or explanation by way of dialectic or logic, then yes, intuitions do not count as reasoning. But I think this is too narrow a definition of reasoning or thinking. Let me turn back to something that Gadamer talks about. I think Gadamer provides an account of intuition that is extremely rich and extremely helpful. Um, and he does so by looking back to ways of talking that have either become less important or have nearly disappeared. So I want to focus on three of his notions here. One is tact. You know what it's like to be a tactful person. Another is common sense. Uh, Gadamer's actually working with the Latin sensus communis, but we don't, we don't have to get into Latin. It's just common sense will be fine. And the other is taste. Taste. Gadamer describes tact as sensitivity and sensitiveness to situations and how to behave in them for which knowledge from general principles does not suffice. Hence, an essential part of tact is that it is tacit and unformulable. There is no way to write a manual on tact. The heart of tact is the ability to know how to act in a very specific situation, and every situation turns out to be specific. Gadamer speaks of the experienced person, and he describes that person as someone who's radically undogmatic, who, because of the many experiences he has had and the knowledge he has drawn from them, is particularly well-equipped to have new experience and to learn from them. One becomes tactful precisely by exercising tact, which, of course, can only be learned by way of experience. Now, Gadamer thinks that all of this is possible because there's something like a common sense that grounds a community. Gadamer describes it as both something that is common to all members of a community and, and here I'm quoting, the sense that founds community. Let me quote something else he says. What gives the human will its direction is not the abstract universality of reason, but the concrete universality represented by the community of a group, a people, a nation, or the whole human race. Hence, developing this communal sense is of decisive importance for living. If we doubt whether someone has common sense, we're basically questioning whether that person lives by the wisdom of the community. Well, Gadamer notes that the Enlightenment keeps the notion of common sense. He claims that it was as he puts it, emptied of all political content, and the result is that it loses its genuine critical significance. In other words, 
Gottimer suggesting that common sense was lost as a way of connecting community. Now, Gottimer, interestingly enough, points out to a kind of exception to this move. Turns out it's pietism, which places the knowledge of this intuitive source in the heart. Such knowledge serves to hold an entire society together, and it is concerned as much with truths and statements as with arrangements and patterns comprised in statements. For almost all of us who speak English as a mother tongue, the idea of taste is connected to personal preference for the arts or fashion or something like that. Gadamer points out that this represents a significant departure from the tradition. He writes, The concept of taste was originally more a moral than aesthetic idea. The further problem with the concept of taste is that once it becomes a purely aesthetic thing, it is completely relativized. You have your taste, I have my taste. There is no way of arguing intelligently about our tastes. Yet Gadamer is thinking about taste in a much more robust sense. There can be taste that is more developed. There can be good and bad taste. And there can be a sense in which we consider someone's else, someone else's taste to be correct. This is because the concept of taste, and here I'm quoting, undoubtedly implies a mode of knowing. Gadamer continues, the mark of good taste is being able to stand back from ourselves and our private prejudices. Thus, taste in its essential nature is not private, but a social phenomenon of the first order. We are united by our collective sense of taste, for it is something that appears to be simply obvious. This leads Gadamer to say the following. Taste is therefore something like a sense. In its operation, it has no knowledge of reasons. If taste registers a negative reaction to something, it is not able to say why. Taste is defined precisely by the fact that it is offended by what is tasteless and thus avoids it, like anything else that threatens injury. Now, I've already pointed out that Nietzsche thinks that our most sacred convictions, the unchanging elements in our supreme values, are judgments of our muscles. I think what we've been talking about here all fits together. Nietzsche, of course, also claims that there's more reason in your body than in your best wisdom. Now, to put all of this together, Nietzsche is claiming that we are most convinced by the kind of reasoning that takes place on, we might say, a gut level. We're the least convinced by an elaborate argument, one that requires multiple steps. I think this is precisely why phenomenology is such a powerful tool, to show someone that such and such is the case by way of a painstaking phenomenology is, I think, one of the best ways of convincing someone of the rightness of the position. Traditional arguments have a place, but they are not nearly as effective. What is at stake here is the Enlightenment, in which the emphasis is shifted to the individual. In contrast, in societies that have not had an Enlightenment, the thinking is what Haidt calls sociocentric 
in the sense that the group takes precedence over the individual. In such societies, morality is not seen as connected to convention, but is instead seen as an absolute. Most societies across the world differ from Western society in the way in which they work out the relation of the individual to society as a whole, and thus their fundamental moral intuitions differ too. One of the points that Haight makes is very important. Whereas most Western intellectuals think of doing wrong in terms of harm or pain, in other words, that action could hurt someone, so you shouldn't do that, other societies use a matrix of concepts. In addition to what we might call the harm or care concern, there are other concerns. Whereas the harm or care aspect evolves from the fragility of life, particularly, particularly the fragility of children, the concept of fairness evolved because people wanted to be able to cooperate with one another without getting exploited. The loyalty aspect evolved to help determine who was on the team and whether that person is really a team player. Another aspect is that of authority. Some people have authority, and those people should be obeyed. Needless to say, such an aspect is going to be closely connected to the rank or the status of the person involved. The last aspect is sanctity. And Haight thinks that it may have evolved from the challenge of figuring out which foods could be eaten safely, and then it becomes worry about the pathogens and parasites and various other things that could possibly harm us. Growing up evangelical, I think I was exposed to all of these aspects. However, while all of the aspects are important, they can all be put into question. Consider fairness. How does one navigate such a path to fairness? The usual way in the Western world has been to consider many advantages perfectly legitimate. But you may have noticed that one of the things that COVID did was make it so painfully obvious just how unfair the world is as it stands. During COVID, the essential workers were expected to get to the shop or the factory, while many white-collar employees were able to work from home. Was that fair? It's a difficult question to answer, isn't it? It seems, in some sense, unfair. As to loyalty, that certainly is important. But, of course, it's going to greatly depend upon the personal organization to which we should be loyal, whether they truly deserve our loyalty. Unfortunately, then, loyalty can never simply be a good in and of itself but it is something that is good or bad depending upon who one is loyal to. Authority is, I think, also a problem today, um, though in an interestingly different way. There is a growing distrust of so-called experts. I remember a conversation with someone that illustrates precisely this. Person says, we're driving in the car, Person says, I don't think you need any expertise to comment on art. And my response was, you are speaking to someone who has spent much of his career arguing precisely the opposite, that there are better and worse views about art, that considering art to be good may not have anything to do with whether we like it. 
we've already discussed sanctity in relation to religion. Religion is about the sacred and our commitment together to respect it. But of course, sanctity is like everything else. It evolves. Now, in order to test this thesis, Haight interviewed children and adults in Chicago and Orissa, which is now Odisha, in India, by presenting them with 39 different stories. On some of these, everyone agreed. For example, everyone condemned the man who walked up to a sleeping dog and kicked it. On others, the Americans thought that the action was wrong, and the Orions judged it to be right. The actual example is about a woman who goes to the movies on her own, whose husband finds out and then threatens to beat her if she does it again, and then does beat her when she does it again. So the Americans thought that wasn't a good thing, and the Orions thought that was perfectly correct. On certain actions, it was the Americans who thought the action to be right, and the Orions who thought it wrong, such as a widow who eats fish. What makes this particularly interesting is that Americans did not base their convictions on convention, nor did they think that such judgments that they made were relativistic in nature. Instead, they simply thought, for instance, that widows should be allowed to eat what they want to eat. Orions, on the other hand, believe that eating fish stimulates sexual appetites, something which is inappropriate for a widow. That's a really interesting conclusion. Now, when Haidt extended his research, he discovered some significant things. For instance, interviewees in Philadelphia all made important distinctions between violations of convention and those of morality, and Brazilians from the upper class agreed with the Americans. Yet lower class Brazilians concluded that breaking social conventions was universally wrong. However, most people, not all, agreed that the violations taboos, even if they didn't harm anyone, were still wrong. In other words, the category of harm was just one category used to judge the righteousness or wrongness of an action. There are other factors at work, and hate concludes that these judgments were not simply the result of reasoning, but were also deeply influenced by social conditioning. He also points out that the two ends of the political spectrum use different reasoning. Those on the left, I've already told you how uncomfortable I am with this language, but it's difficult to find other language. Those on the left tend to restrict their judgments regarding actions that would harm or be unfair. Those on the right use those factors but then they added in loyalty and authority and sanctity. Now, the general difference between these two sides becomes apparent. I I don't like to think about it as sides. Here I'm quoting from hate. If you believe that people are inherently good and that they flourish when constraints and divisions are removed, then yes, it might be sufficient. But conservatives generally take a very different view of human nature. They believe that people need external structures or constraints in order to behave well, to cooperate and thrive. These external constraints include laws, institutions, traditions, nations, and religions. People who hold this constrained view 
are therefore very concerned about the health and integrity of those outside-of-the-mind coordination devices. That was all a quote, by the way, from Haight. Now, I understand the conservative view, I think, well enough. Um, and I actually think that, at least in the way I think, I take those things into account. Um, I think authority and loyalty um, are very important. Um, but again, what I've suggested is this could be dangerous too. But I still worry about how we think about our moral judgments. It was the Persian prophet Mani who claimed that in this world there are forces of absolute evil and absolute good. In effect, one is faced with an all-or-nothing choice. This, I think, is phenomenologically, i.e. from a descriptive standpoint, simply wrong. I think the world that comes at us is neither absolutely good nor absolutely bad. Good is alloyed with bad. Even bad behavior often is not really wholly bad. But things get really problematic when we start thinking of one another in Manichaean terms. In other words, someone is either wholly good or wholly bad. I don't think there's anything like a prescribed evangelical view on this matter. I know evangelicals who veer in the direction of such Manichaeanism, but I wasn't taught that human beings are simply bad. But of course, remember the example I gave earlier about the person who thought that non-Christians couldn't love their children. I'm hoping that it is fully apparent that such a claim is just wrong. It's one thing to say that human beings are sinful. It's a very different kind of thing, though, to say that given that sinfulness, non-Christians or unsaved people can never do anything good. The problem, of course, with this view is it simply doesn't comport with actual experience. The world is not easily divisible into saved and unsaved people on the basis of their actions. From an early age, I came to see that what people believed wasn't always reflected in how they acted. Put more pointedly, I came to see what a lot of evangelical children, I think, come to see that there were a lot of really good people who weren't religious in the usual sense of that term. They didn't go to church or anything like that. And then, of course, there were a lot of people who did go to church and were religious in all the normal ways, who acted in ways that were directly in conflict with their stated beliefs. Note how I put that. Directly in conflict with their stated beliefs. We're now at a point where I think we have a much better view of how our moral judgments come into existence. When we intuitively judge that someone has done something wrong, we may need to provide an explanation or account of why we said or thought that. However, we have seen that in a nutshell, the problem is that since our moral judgments arise from our moral intuitions, such judgments can only be studied after the fact, after the fact of having made them. Does this give you any insight into why conversations that touch on moral issues are so difficult? We very much like to see ourselves as highly rational beings that make decisions on the basis of good reason, evidence, etc., etc., etc. 
But now it's becoming clear to neuroscientists and moral psychologists that we simply don't make moral judgments in this rational way. We don't make judgments about morality in a way that can be easily described or determined. Instead, our emotions are where we process incoming information. Put another way, everything we encounter by way of the senses has to go through this emotional filter. If this is correct, then of course our relation to the entire world is mediated by our emotions. Now we can put all of this in a different way by considering how unusual this move is on the part of neuroscientists and moral psychologists. A long-standing assumption for many philosophers, but not just those alone, is that emotions and reasoning are two different things. But we've just seen that emotions are actually part of reason. They're actually indispensable to reasoning correctly. Of course, you can see why philosophers would much prefer to locate moral judgments within the sphere of reason, because, of course, then they can be judged and defended and taken apart for analysis, etc., etc. Then we can have conversations. A moral intuition may be perfectly sound. It may be tr trustworthy. But the problem is it can't give an account of itself. That doesn't stop us from thinking we can give an account, and sometimes it doesn't stop us from making up all kinds of different reasons to explain something that is really the result of an intuitive process that we, at the end of the day, don't really fully understand. But if this account is correct, then all of those reasons are post-hoc constructions. Or let me put this another way. I think we do have reasons behind our intuitive judgments. But morality is not simply a matter of either emotion or a matter of reason. Indeed, it's profoundly both. This leaves us in an uncomfortable spot. Our moral values are deeply tied to our emotions, which means that any discussion of them is going to be emotional. I'm not suggesting that papers on morality written by philosophers are simply emotional in nature. They're usually actually quite rational. But I am suggesting that it turns out we can't encounter the world without bringing ourselves along. And that means we also can't easily discuss topics that are deeply related to our emotions. If you have a deep emotional commitment to something, it will be difficult to discuss in a fully rational manner. Why? Well, because we are subjects who care about certain things. What things we care about and how we show that care may vary from group to group, and of course there are going to be deviations within groups. But the things we care about for practical purposes, more or less, are are sacred things, and it is very difficult to discuss anything that's sacred. For any discussion could appear, even though it might not have that intention, could appear to undermine the sacrality of the sacred, which, as I say, may not be the desire at all. Further, once something is determined to be sacred, 
It's very difficult to change that designation. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. We live in a time when the sacred is changing. To explain all that, of course, would require a whole series of episodes. And it should be obvious that such deep change is going to happen with tension and difficulty. Part of that, of course, is that some people simply don't like change. But it's much more difficult than that. The degree of tension we're currently experiencing is due to the fact that there are significant moral changes going on. So if you're wondering, what am I talking about? Well, if you simply take someone like me, a queer person, we see that Western society has become considerably more open to people like me. But a change of that magnitude doesn't happen without a struggle. Nor does it happen without creating a sense of ill will among some people. A sense, again for some, that things are somehow falling apart. Of course, there is no assurance that such change for people like me will be permanent. Rights can be given and they can also be taken away. I want to leave you with a short quote, just to get you thinking. As I was preparing for this episode, I was watching a movie and one of the characters suddenly said, and I happened to write it down, stop rationalizing. You know this in your heart. Now, we're not talking about highbrow entertainment here. It was a very simple, ordinary Hollywood movie. But it was such an interesting statement. Because in this example, the rationalizing is about assuring the person who feels something different in his or her heart to try and ignore that and do something else. This is interesting. Of course, the appeal here is to something that we call conscience. That is, this ability to know that something is right or wrong without any kind of argument. We could talk about following your heart versus following your head, if you like. I suspect that many of us would think that thinking about the right thing to do would make sense. I certainly do. I think it would be helpful, especially if we were to share our insights with one another. In other words, think together about this. But the point here is somewhat different, and that is the other character already knows the right thing to do. But instead of using his intelligence to come up with a, a further reason for doing that, he's using intelligence to come up with a reason for doing precisely the opposite. So the question I leave with you, to what extent do we already know the right thing to do? And to what extent are we doing our best to pretend otherwise? I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and you've been listening to On Becoming. If you're finding this podcast interesting, please tell your friends and join us next week.